The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. God, we do want to say to you, this is your church and we are your people. And without you, we can do nothing. I think one of the lines in one of the songs this morning said that we come to you with empty hands. And that's the case. That is true. We come to you with empty hands in need of you to pour grace into our lives, to cause change, to grow and develop and heal, to forgive, to change us. So, Father, what I want to say is we as a people and I as a person want to be low beneath you. And so would you forgive us of and forgive me of all the places where we have not been like that? Would you have free reign in our hearts right now and own us? Own us for our own good. Own us for your glory. Would you please take your word this morning, and Lord, I'm conscious as I come to it, as I'm going to say here in a moment, I'm conscious of the, of the great opportunity to be clunky with this because there's so much here. And so I pray that you would make it clear, and you would help us accomplish this morning what you want accomplished, and that you would help us to hear what you want said. Would you encourage your people, and would you call those who are not yet your people, would you call them to you and save Father, would you do this? Would you do it by your spirits, free, powerful, moving among us? That Christ would be honored here and that his church would be built, his bride would be cleansed, his people would be blessed. Would you make that happen, Father, Son, and Spirit? Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 picking up where we've left off in previous weeks. Up to this point, what we've seen in this chapter is that Paul is bringing to us from God the topic of the resurrection of the dead. Then he began at the beginning of this chapter by addressing that topic by talking about the gospel, sketched out very briefly in just a couple of verses. It's the gospel of God's grace. And grace is what we talked about last week. Looked at verse 10 with a little bit of verse 9, but mostly verse 10 last week, looking at the grace that God pours out on his people. Grace is goodness in a situation where it shouldn't be. God's goodness, when from, from God's perspective, there is no obligation, there is no necessity to give goodness, and from a, a person receiving it, there is no should, no deservedness, no merit. What should happen, what should be given, and what should be received is wrath, but what instead happens is goodness. That's grace. And God is a God of great grace, sending Christ to die on the cross to pay for sin, opening our eyes to see it, giving faith to believe it, and then empowering grace to walk in it afterwards. Grace. That's what the gospel's about. And part and parcel of the gospel is, as he says, the resurrection Verses 3, 4, and 5, he's talking about it, and he says that Christ died according to the Scriptures and was raised according to the Scriptures. 
So he's kind of moving into the resurrection. And with that, we're ready to look at our verse this morning, which explains why he's come to this. Verse 12 says that they had a problem in Corinth, and some didn't believe the resurrection from the dead was even possible. So he's addressing that. If you look at this passage, verses 12 to 34, it's a really big chunk. And I preached on one verse last week, so with, I hope you brought a lunch today. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm not going to. Not going to go that long, but but I do have a problem. As I said when I was praying, I do have a problem that this is a long passage that does need to be kind of laid out together because it hangs together. There, your your text may break it into three paragraphs because there are three main thoughts and they all kind of hang together a little bit. But it's way too long to deal with in one sermon. So what I'm going to do is I notice that the first paragraph connects to the last paragraph in some ways, and the second paragraph connects to the last paragraph in some way. So I'm going to try to do this in two different sermons, two different weeks, touching on the first paragraph this morning with a little bit of the last, and next week, the second paragraph with a little bit of the last. And I hope that doesn't come off too clunky, and I hope it comes off clear and not too redundant. But there will be a little bit of overlap. I couldn't figure out another way to do it. So I'm going to read the whole passage, go through it, giving light treatment to 20 to 28 to kind of explain some of the details, and there are some details that need to be explained. And then give special emphasis to the first and a little bit of the last paragraph this morning. So that's what I'm going to do. Let me read 15 verses 12 all the way to 34. And then as I said, I'll pass back through it. Beginning verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? 
If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 12 opens by introducing to us the problem. For, for one reason or another, some contingent of the church in Corinth did not believe that the resurrection of the dead was possible. Seems probably that it was some in the leadership, which is why it wasn't being dealt with locally and Paul had to address it. But he turns and comes to it. And you'll notice that how he does so is highly logical. It kind of loops back and forth on itself, back and forth and back and forth. It's highly logical, and it's presumptive. He's presuming upon some common knowledge. As he says, basically in verse 13, come on now, guys, if there's no resurrection, think about this, then even Christ has not been raised. Obviously, to which a bunch of non-Christian people and a bunch of Jewish people in Corinth would have said, exactly, we don't believe that. So this is a really weak argument to make to a non-believing audience. This, this is presuming upon some common accepted knowledge. He's talking to people in a church, in a Christian setting, who are saying, we at least profess to believe some of these basics. So he's talking to people who in some sense profess to be Christians, and he says, okay, let's take the assumption that the dead are not raised back to life. Do you realize what that would mean? Christ, who is fully human... Jesus, Christ, is fully God and fully human. He's the second person of the triune God who came to earth, took on a body, and became a man. Really, a full man. And if men are not raised back from the dead, then the man, Christ, was not raised back from the dead, which presents a host of problems. We're liars. Because we've proclaimed that. The message that we proclaim is false. It's vain. It's empty, fruitless, pointless. You've been deceived because you have believed in vain, pointlessly, fruitlessly, empty. You believe this message is just a myth. If that's what happened, if the dead aren't raised, this is just a nice fable that's made us then liars and you fruitless. But most importantly, and this is, this is the main issue right here, verse 17. Most importantly, it has left you still in your sins. If Christ was not raised, then the big problem is you are still in your sins. As were all of those, next verse, who died believing in Christ. They died still in their sins and they perished. If he wasn't raised, they believed in vain too, and they are gone. If what we're talking about here does not include a resurrection, then it's just nice, happy talk for here on the earth, and we are fooling ourselves. We are most to be pitied. He's saying this to people in the church to kind of make them wake up and realize the ramifications, what it means that Christ was raised. 
And he's doing it kind of in reverse, say what it would mean if he, if he wasn't raised. But verse 20, of course, that's not what happened. He did come back from the dead, and we're going to give, as I said, greater attention to this next week. But Christ has been raised the first fruits. It says that twice. It says it in verse 20 and then in 23. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. First fruits is the first bit of the harvest, maybe the first crops to come out of the field or the first thing to come off the vine or off the tree, which says there's more coming. It's only just started. Look how good it is. There's more coming. So the fact that you don't see the more yet is no argument that it's not going to come. In fact, the first fruits is argument that it is going to come. Christ has been raised, and all who are in him will also be raised when, when Christ comes back. That's what Paul argues. And when will that happen? After he's finished what he's about right now, subjecting all power, all rule, and all the nations to him so that he can wrap everything up and give it back to the Father. Everything all back in its perfect order. We'll look at that more next week. But that's what Christ is about right now. And then we come to the last paragraph, verse 29, where Paul turns to application. And he does so first with, with kind of a, of a bit of a scolding sort of tone. And he says, if you're thinking this through properly and you've got the, the reality of the resurrection, it should affect how you live. Look around. It affects how people live. And he uses two examples. One, other people, which we'll talk about, and then he himself. We believe there's a life after this life and so we do something. Two examples. In verse 29, we'll look at that one first. And this is where we are geographically right now, what surrounds us and the times we live in. This, this is a more important verse to us now than it has been in the past. It has always been confusing, but it's a little bit, got a little bit of a point on it because of where we live. So I need to spend a little bit of time on verse 29. What does it mean? Well, it's helpful to note what it doesn't mean. We start there by looking at the context. Paul began this whole letter, you'll recall, back in chapter 1, talking about the gospel, the good news of how God saves people. And back there in the beginning, he was talking about baptism. And what did he say? I didn't baptize anybody. Oh, actually, yeah, I did baptize one guy, maybe a whole household, but I really don't remember because it really wasn't all that important. I was sent to preach the gospel, not to baptize, which tells us something critical. Baptism is not a part of the gospel. Baptism is not a part of what God does to save. It's not a preparing part. It's not a saving part. It's not a finishing part. It's something separate and distinct. It's intended to show a salvation that has happened, but it is not a part of the salvation. Paul is extremely concerned to be very clear, to know nothing except Christ and him crucified, the gospel. And baptism is kind of a tack-on in Paul's mind. That's the context of this whole book in which this verse, one verse right here, sits. We need to keep that in mind. 
Paul, whatever Paul means, he clearly does not mean that this is important or helpful or an aid or a finishing touch on salvation itself. It's separate. Furthermore, what it isn't, it isn't a command. If you look at the verse, it is not a command. He just says, people are doing it. Not, you should. Furthermore, it's not even clear that people in the church are doing it. It's not clear who's doing it. It just says, people are doing this. What did they mean when they did it? And even if it is people in the church in Corinth, what else it isn't, is it isn't very good evidence that Christians should do this. Because aren't the people in Corinth doing a whole bunch of things they shouldn't do? That's what it isn't. We also look at history and know that there isn't any other evidence of any church that believes Paul's gospel doing this. None anywhere. So what is it actually? What is verse 29 about? And as I said, it's uniquely important to us now, but it has always been debated because it's, it's kind of confusing. Paul's not very clear about what actually is going on here because he and the Corinthians have some sort of common knowledge here, and he's not trying to explain this practice. He's just using it as an illustration. What's he illustrating? He's trying to illustrate. So what, the first thing that this is, is it's an illustration that people who think there's something after life, there's some life after death, in this life act. They do something. That's, that's what he's using it to illustrate. Just like his next illustration of he himself, I believe there's something out there after this life, after this death, and so I have acted here now on this life. That's the point he's illustrating in these two different ways. It's an illustration about how belief in the future affects your actions now. But what, do we have any idea what exactly these folks are doing. Well, there are a whole bunch of theories, and, and some of them trace down some of the paths that I've already pointed out here. I'll offer what I think is most likely, but I, I, I won't say that this is the right way because it's not clear. I think what is most likely centers around the phrase, on behalf of. You see it there twice. It's in the middle and then it's at the very end of the verse, on behalf of. We often read that and think, we assume, that there's a baptism here that is doing something to benefit the one who is dead. I think rather, and, and grammatically this is perfectly permissible, I think rather what we should read here is individuals baptized because of, on account of, the dead. Perfectly permissible to read it that way. And if you begin to think baptized on account of the dead, it changes how you perceive what's being said here. To summarize it all, I don't, I don't want to spend too much more time on this because it's not really the point. To summarize, what I think is happening here, what I think he's talking about, is something extremely common. A person asking for and then being baptized out of a desire to be reunited with a loved one who has died. Me baptized on account of, because of 
this dead person. I want to be with him. As grandma on her deathbed said, I hope I see you in heaven. I was moved by that. And I said, I want to go. And then Paul says, so what did you think you were doing there then if there is no life after death? What was that about? He's grabbing something in their hearts that they knew in here better than they're saying they know up here. I don't think there's any life after death. Although when grandma talked about it, it sure grabbed me. I think that's what's going on here. Paul knows full well there are people around who constantly live as if they believe there is life coming after death, but now are intellectually denying it, and he's calling them on that. I think that's what's going on. But I'm not sure. What I am sure is what it isn't. It's not a command. It has nothing to do with salvation, neither helping nor accomplishing nor finishing salvation. And its primary use in the passage is as an illustration to show, this is Paul's application section, if you believe there is life out there after death, you will do something now. Just like I did in Corinth, I mean in Ephesus. Just like you should do now. Where does he finish? Verses 33 and 34, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. He calls them to a life, a life of purity and holiness right now. That's where the text ends. As I said, I'm going to focus on the first paragraph with a little bit of a touch into the last paragraph this morning. And here's the, here's the main point I'm going to work on in the rest of our time today. It's my main point. Because of the resurrection of Christ... You can know that God has not left you in your sins. Neither in this life nor in the next. That's my main point. I'm going to make two elaborations. Neither in this life nor in the next. That's the two, the two points I'm going to work on. But let me state it again. Because of the resurrection of Christ, you can know that God has not left you in your sins neither in this life nor in the next. So here's the first point. The resurrection means we are no longer condemned to perish in our sins. The resurrection means we are no longer condemned to perish in our sins. I'm taking this right out of verse 17, which is, which is the most important verse in that first paragraph. I'm flipping it around to make it a positive statement. The paragraph, of course, walks through the logic that if Christ, if human beings aren't raised and Christ wasn't raised, and that then leaves us with a problem, he just died under the curse of God, went into the tomb, and there he sits. End of story. If Christ was not raised. Which leaves us right where we started. Which leaves us looking at, standing before, and looking at the law of God, looking at the demands of a holy and righteous, pure, good God, and falling far short of those good requirements. And you've got to understand, the law of God is a good thing. 
If we ever lived the law of God, if we ever lived in a society that lived the law of God, it would be heaven. In fact, one day it will be heaven. This would be the best place you've ever imagined. There'd be no pain and no loss and no sorrow. It would be perfect and clean and right. There would be perfect joy, peace and rest there. It would be wonderful, but that's not what it is now because we don't live that now. None of us, not just them out there, us here, we don't. You don't. We break the law of God constantly. We are bent in here away from him, bent towards ourselves and towards autonomy. We set up gods and laws of our own and follow them, and that creates dramatic chaos and loss all throughout the whole world. And it puts us before a God who is pure and holy and righteous. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, there is no message of grace whatsoever. And all we face is a holy God angered. Now, quite obviously, Paul's point is exactly the opposite of that. So I'm I'm coming to the good news. It's exactly the opposite of that. But he presents it in the negative, to make us think about the negative. Still in your sins. You would be still in your sins. Do you know what that means? Well, verse 18 fleshes out a little bit of that. Not just those who have already died, but we ourselves, when we died, still in our sins, we would perish. Which tells us something. To die is not to perish. To die is just to leave this world. Perishing may happen or may not, but if we die in our sins, we perish, which is awful. Awful. Terrible and tragic, like nothing you can imagine, to perish, to die and then die forever and ever and ever and ever under the anger and the wrath of an omnipotent, omniscient God who knows every single thing and has all power to perish is awful. But the glorious truth is that that has not happened to those who have died in Christ. And it will never, ever, ever happen to you. Because he was raised. There is something glorious here, Christian. And I'm speaking to Christians... I'll come to those who sit here and are not yet clothed with Christ. I'll come to you in a moment and I'll plead with you. But Christian, do you realize? This is only in the used to be category for you. And it will never be in the is or will be. Never. This is awesome. You do not have a hope that is only 
Nice talk for this life to encourage you and lift you up and give you maybe some proper direction in life that goes poof at the grave. Evaporates. You are not a person to be pitied. You are a person to be envied because the grave does not end anything for you. It begins something. There's a great song, a great song from a few years back that says, It is not death to die. And he elaborates, for those who have died in Christ. You are most to be envied, not pitied. Oh, you are a blessed people. And you need to remember this because, my goodness, do we not very quickly fall into the envy of other people and the pity of ourselves? Do we have, uh, we have many Psalm 73 moments in life. I'm sitting at a basketball game the other day watching a phenomenal athlete enviously. What in the world am I doing? I'm envying footwork and jump shots over this. What in the world? What am I doing? That's, of course, trivial because we can move. There are a whole bunch of other things. You've got a a really, really difficult marriage and you envy your neighbor who looks just peachy keen happy. You're flat broke driving down the street and you see those who aren't. I mean, the doctor says it's cancer and your neighbor doesn't have any cancer and he's a complete pagan. What's the deal? This is, this is Psalm 73 living. I'm trying to figure out, God, what is going on until I considered the end. Consider the end. Brother, sister, consider the end. Christ has been raised. The gospel is true. Your sins are atoned for. You are no longer in them and you will never, ever perish but will live forever. You are a most fortunate, blessed person. And if you don't have this, I invite you to it. I just have to ask you because I don't know everybody here. I don't know the hearts of everybody that I do know here. Are you still in your sins? Are you? Are you moving down a path that ends in perishing? May God open your eyes and convince you of it right now. I I can't. I I don't know you. I I don't know. I, I couldn't even look inside and carefully parse it out. But may God the Spirit lay His hand on you and say, Yes, you are still in your sin. And then see, please, may you see laid out right in front of you, hope. The only hope. Because of the fact that Christ was raised from the dead, there is an immense opportunity here, and there is a warning offered to you. There's a warning because in raising Christ from the dead, God the Father has said, this one right here, is the only one who conquers death and gives life. His cross is the only way that sin can be removed. Otherwise, you are left in it. God has said that and is focusing all of our, and I pray all of your attention on Jesus crucified and that alone. And anything else leaves you in your sins. 
You, we, are, we are not permitted to, as, as is our fashion today, we want to kind of pick and choose, take the bit of this that I like and the bit of that that I like. And God has said, there is a way, a single Savior. And not, not a Jesus of my own imagination, not a Jesus that I join anything into to kind of help him out, a, a Christ crucified, and I trust him alone. Period. I give up all of me, all of me, to him, no holds barred. Surrender. Which is an awesome opportunity. Because you can know life. The removal of your sins. The changing of all of your eternity. So I invite you to come. Trust him. Just say, Jesus, help. I need you. Trust him. To be freed from your sins forever is a remarkable, remarkable, remarkable blessing. And if that was it, you would still be Christians. You would still be a most blessed, most fortunate people. But there is even more than that if you can imagine. Because he has not just said, I will free you from, I will take you out of your sins in an eternal sense. For the next 70 years, good luck with that. But I have the future covered. If, if that was it, that would be plenty good. 10,000 years from now, these 70 years will be com- completely minimized. But more than that, he has said, as I move to the second point, the resurrection means even more than just you're freed from your sins forever. The resurrection means that you are no longer bound to live in your sins. So there's the second point. The resurrection means we are no longer bound to live in our sins. The first point is about hope for the, the life after this. And he says there in verse 16, verse 19, if we were only hoping in this life, we'd be most pitied. So he's trying to stretch it out to say we hope for the next life also. But if you can turn that, we also have hope for this life. The resurrection says, I, you, Christian, are not bound to live in your sins now. But you're freed from its power over you. This concept is dealt with very prominently in some other places. And I'll I'll note Romans 6. I'll touch on it a little bit today, but if you want to look at this extensively, look at Romans 6, where Paul connects the resurrection of Christ to freedom from sin, sin's power. All over that chapter. But it's hinted at here in this chapter too. Paul's talking about this, this not being left in our sins, and when he comes down to the application piece, he tells us to stop sinning. He can do that because of the theological truth. We are not bound. We're not locked up, shackled, enslaved to sin anymore because we've been freed from it by Christ. So we see that hint in in where he goes with his application. We also see it hinted at in the fact that sins, in verse 17, is plural. That's slightly unusual for Paul. Not that he never talks like that, but more commonly, 
you, you would expect to see still in your sin, the state. But he talks about sins, kind of individualizing, particularizing, particular sins. You're not bound in them. We were, we were slaves to sin, not just condemned for them, that was the previous point, but now stuck, shackled. But Christ, when he died, as he says in Romans, he broke us free, freed us from it. So Romans 6, 4, we could walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 17, that we would no longer be under the dominion of sin. He has not just acted to free you from judgment, but he's acted to free you to live differently. And to think about this, let me invite you to picture your sin differently. In the previous point, when I'm talking about condemnation and and judgment, I'm using a, a legal metaphor. That's what words like justification and justification, I said that twice, didn't I? Condemnation, justification, those are, those are legal terms. Judgment, that's a legal idea. But, well, that's true. Let me invite you to set that aside for a moment and think of your sin more like a disease or a chronic illness. I'll use the word plague. Plague. Think about it not as a crime you commit, but as a plague. And every day you get up plagued by your sins. And you are plagued by the sins of other people too, but set that aside. You're plagued by your own sins. Your, your own sins are your greatest problem. I'm fully aware that people do all kinds of, all kinds of wicked stuff to us. And it causes all kinds of pain and suffering. I am fully aware of that. But what, I'm, what I want to point out is that if we could live filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, if we could live filled with the love of God above the love of all other things and the love of neighbor as ourself, we'd be, we'd be okay. Even if people did stuff to us, we would know joy. And peace while other people are doing stuff to us. We'd be okay if we could live like that, but we don't. We don't. Instead, we worry and we fear and we lust and we envy and we rage and we appease and we retaliate and we deceive and we blame shift and we hide and we avoid, accuse, excuse, self-justify, etc., 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 etc. That's what you do. That's how you live. And notice again, I am not saying that in any way whatsoever to generate any feeling of condemnation in you. There is no condemnation on you, Christian. I'm not trying to conjure up condemnation. I'm trying to conjure up sorrow. Step back and consider yourself and realize that's what I do That's who I am every day when I get up. My goodness. Have you ever been there? Do you realize that about yourself? You're plagued by your own sin. 
a disease, an illness that you carry around inside of you. Have you ever been at the point where Paul is in Romans 7, a wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Not from them out there. Who can deliver me from me? I am my greatest problem. Ah! Who can do that? God. And he is about it. He has not left you in your sins. Which is really good news if you get in touch with the sorrow that your sins cause you. He has not left you in it. Have you? I have had experience recently of being a coach. If you've ever been a coach or ever been a, a, maybe a fan of young kids in particular, you, you stand on the sideline and you watch mistakes happening. Systemic problems. And you could just say, well, that's what they are, because my goodness, it's going to be complicated to work this out. God could just look at you and say, that's what they are, because my goodness, this is going to be complicated to work this out. I mean, this guy has been doing this for 25 years. You know how deep that rut is? I'd just let that go until he dies, and then, then it'll be okay. But a good coach says, I'm going to approach, given my human limitations and, and their abilities, I'm going to approach this and try to correct. I'm still engaged rather than just throwing up my hands and resigned. God has an infinite amount of capability. And is wisely engaging with you, Christian, is wisely engaging with you in your life to grow you, to heal you of your plague. Now, Romans, as I said, lays out more of the theology behind that. And this passage in the bottom down here in 33 and 34 gives us a little bit of the how-to. Notice he just gives a command. I'm looking at 34. I'll just focus on 34 here. Do not go on sinning. If, if that was all that was there, that would be okay. God's entitled to command. And he has broken the hold, the enslavement that sin has on us. So you can hear that and you can respond to it, but he's put more in there. Do you notice the phrase right before and right after that? The ESV right before says, Wake up from your drunken stupor. Other translations, I think, better say, be sober-minded. He's using the, the analogy of how when you're intoxicated, you're not thinking straight. He's saying, think straight, stop sinning, and what's he say after? For some have no knowledge of God. So in the middle, stop sinning, Think straight. Sinning is for you have no knowledge of God. What should you think straight about? Knowledge of God. And what has he told us in this passage that should be informing you with knowledge about God? Well, some of it we haven't looked at yet. See it next week. But what we have seen, my goodness, my goodness. What has he shown us here? What, what knowledge of God is there here in this passage? My goodness, he has rescued you from perishing. Is he now going to command you anything that's going to rip you off? 
If he was out to get you, he had you. But he has dramatically, decisively, graciously acted to deliver you. And so when he speaks to you, whatever he commands you comes from a heart that says, I am for you, and in deep love, I am engaging with you to fix you. Think straight about that, Christian. Be sober-minded. Don't listen to the fools that gather around you. Bad company ruins good morals. Why are you listening to that fool? Oh, maybe, his, maybe his life's kind of together. Why are you envying his life? What do you have? Oh, my. Brother and sister, he has not left you in your sin. The world wants to leave you one, lead you one way, but God wants to lead you another way, to lead you out of your sin, not just by telling you to shape up. He has acted to free you to shape up, but he also acts to reshape your mind. And here, if this was a, an internet thing, I'd put a little blue link right here to last week's sermon. It'd be underlined, see previous week, about how grace empowers us. Grace empowers us, not just command, but grace The goodness of God wants to act on you, to bless you by freeing you and not leaving you in your sin now. And he does that by informing you who he is in all of his goodness and wooing you to him, exposing the deception that's out there, coming to you from all kinds of different angles, even coming to you from your fallen heart. This is a God, Christian, your God, who has raised Christ and in raising Christ, what that means is that the gospel's true and you are not left in your sins, not in the next life and not in this one either. So be sober-minded. Don't be deceived. Hope in Him. Let me pray. God, as I said earlier, these are only words unless your Spirit takes them and runs through the room with them and places them just right in the particular hearts, in the particular places where they belong. We need you. And so I ask you, will you please, will you please do the work that each person here needs to come to know you and to come to know you more? Almighty God, will you help us to be sober-minded, to think straight about you, to see sin for what it is, a plague, to want to flee it, but then, Lord, to be changed by your gracious revealing of yourself. Do that, please. I can say it, that doesn't make it so unless you do it. Invite, draw, win, woo, entice, lure your people to you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you that you have not left us in our sins. I pray, Lord, make this church what you want it to be. Make us happy in you. To your honor and for our good, I pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.